0: Section 46 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain Volume 5 Chapter 44 Letters of 1905 to Twitchell, Mr. Duneca, and others. Politics and Humanity. A Summer at Dublin. Mark Twain at Seventy. In eighteen eighty four, Mark Twain had abandoned the Republican Party to vote for Cleveland. He believed the party had become corrupt, and to his last day it was hard for him to see anything good in Republican policies or performance. He was a personal friend of Theodore Roosevelt's, but, as we have seen in a former letter, Roosevelt the politician rarely found favor in his eyes. With or without justification, most of the President's political acts invited his caustic sarcasm and unsparing condemnation. Another letter to Twitchell of this time affords a fair example. To Rev. J. H. Twitchell, in Hartford, February 16th art five dear joe i knew i had in me somewhere a definite feeling about the president if i could only find the words to define it with here they are to a hair from leonard jerome for twenty years i have loved roosevelt the man and hated roosevelt the statesman and politician it's mighty good every time in twenty-five years that i have met roosevelt the man a wave of welcome has streaked through me with the hand-grip but whenever as a rule i meet roosevelt the statesman and politician i find him destitute of morals and not respectworthy it is plain that where his political self and his party self are concerned he has nothing resembling a conscience that under those inspirations he is naively indifferent to the restraints of duty and even unaware of them, ready to kick the Constitution into the back yard whenever it gets in the way, and whenever he smells a vote, not only willing but eager to buy it, give extravagant rates for it and pay the bill not out of his own pocket or the party's, but out of the nation's, by cold pillage as per Order 78 and the Appropriation of the Indian Trust Funds. But Roosevelt is excusable. I recognize it and ought to concede it. We are all insane, each in his own way, and with insanity goes irresponsibility. Theodore the man is sane in fairness we ought to keep in mind that theodore as statesman and politician is insane and irresponsible do not throw these enlightenments aside but study them let them raise you to higher planes and make you better you taught me in my callow days let me pay back the debt now in my old age out of a thesaurus with wisdom smelted from the golden oars of experience ever yours for sweetness and light mark the next letter to twichell takes up politics and humanity in general in a manner complimentary to neither mark twain was never really a pessimist but he had pessimistic intervals such as come to most of us in life's later years and at such times he let himself go without stint concerning the damned human race, as he called it, usually with a manifest sense of indignation that he should be a member of it. In much of his later writing, A Mysterious Stranger, for example, he said his say with but small restraint, and certainly in his purely intellectual moments he was likely to be a pessimist of the most extreme type, capably damning the race and the inventor of it, yet at heart no man loved his kind more genuinely or with deeper compassion than mark twain perhaps for its very weaknesses it was only that he had intervals frequent intervals and rather long ones when he did not admire it and was still more doubtful as to the ways of providence to rev j h twitcher in hartford march Fourteenth, five dear joe i have a pudding-head maxim when a man is a pessimist before 48 he knows too much if he is an optimist after it he knows too little it is with contentment therefore that i reflect that i am better and wiser than you joe you seem to be dealing in bulks now the bulk of the farmers and u.s senators are honest As regards purchase and sale with money, who doubts it? Is that the only measure of honesty? Aren't there a dozen kinds of honesty which can't be measured by the money standard? Treason is treason, and there is more than one form of it. The money form is but one of them. When a person is disloyal to any confessed duty, he is plainly and simply dishonest, and knows it knows it, and is privately troubled about it, and not proud of himself. Judge by this standard, and who would challenge the validity of it, there isn't an honest man in Connecticut, nor in the Senate, nor anywhere else. I do not even accept myself this time. Am I finding fault with you, and the rest of the populace? No, I assure you I am not. For I know the human race's limitations, and this makes it my duty, my pleasant duty, to be fair to it. Each person in it is honest in one or several ways, but no member of it is honest in all the ways required by—by what? By his own standard. Outside of that, as I look at it, there is no obligation upon him. Am I honest? i give you my word of honor private i am not for seven years i have suppressed a book which my conscience tells me i ought to publish i hold it a duty to publish it there are other difficult duties which i am equal to but i am not equal to that one yes even i am dishonest not in many ways but in some forty one I think it is we are certainly all honest in one or several ways, every man in the world, though I have reason to think I'm the only one whose blacklist runs so light. Sometimes I feel lonely enough in this lofty solitude. yes, oh yes, I'm not overlooking the steady progress from age to age of the coming of the kingdom of God and righteousness from age to age yes it describes that giddy gait i and the rocks will not live to see it arrive but that is all right it will arrive it surely will but you ought not to be always ironically apologizing for the deity if that thing is going to arrive it is inferable that he wants it to arrive and so it is not quite kind of you and it hurts me to see you flinging sarcasms at the gate of it. And yet it would not be fair in me not to admit that the sarcasms are deserved. When the deity wants a thing, and after working at it for ages and ages, can't show even a shade of progress toward its accomplishment, we, well, we don't laugh, but it is only because we das not the source of righteousness is in the heart yes and engineered and directed by the brain yes well history and tradition testify that the heart is just about what it was in the beginning it has undergone no shade of change its good and evil impulses and their consequences are the same today that they were in old bible times in egyptian times In Greek times, in Middle Age times, in 20th century times, there has been no change. Meantime, the brain has undergone no change. It is what it always was. There are a few good brains and a multitude of poor ones. It was so in old Bible times and in all other times, Greek, Roman, Middle Ages, and 20th century. Among the savages, all the savages, the average brain is as competent as the average brain here or elsewhere. I will prove it to you sometime, if you like. And there are great brains among them, too. I will prove that also, if you like. Well, the 19th century made progress, the first progress after ages and ages, colossal progress in what materialities prodigious acquisitions were made in things which add to the comfort of many and make life harder for as many more but the addition to righteousness is that discoverable i think not the materialities were not invented in the interest of righteousness that there is more righteousness in the world because of them than there was before is hardly demonstrable i think in europe and america there is a vast change due to them in ideals do you admire it all europe and all america are feverishly scrambling for money money is the supreme ideal all others take tenth place with the great bulk of the nations named money lust has always existed but not in the history of the world was it ever a craze, a madness, until your time and mine. This lust has rotted these nations. It has made them hard, sordid, ungentle, dishonest, oppressive. Did England rise against the infamy of the Boer War? No. Rose in favor of it. Did America rise against the infamy of the Philippine War? no rose in favor of it did russia rise against the infamy of the present war no sat still and said nothing has the kingdom of god advanced in russia since the beginning of time or in europe and america considering the vast backward step of the money lust or anywhere else if there has been any progress toward righteousness since the early days of creation which in my ineradicable honesty i am obliged to doubt i think we must confine it to ten percent of the populations of christendom but leaving russia spain and south america entirely out this gives us 320 million to draw the ten percent from that is to say 32 million have advanced toward righteousness in the kingdom of God since the ages and ages have been flying along, the deity sitting up there admiring. Well, you see, it leaves 1,200,000,000 out of the race. They stand just where they have always stood. There has been no change. N.B. No charge for these informations do come down soon joe with love mark st clare mackleway of the brooklyn eagle narrowly escaped injuries in a railway accident and received the following clemens and mackleway were old friends to st clair mackleway in brooklyn twenty one fifth avenue sunday morning april thirtieth nineteen o five dear mackaway your innumerable friends are grateful most grateful as i understand the telegrams the engineer of your train had never seen a locomotive before very well then i am once more glad that there is an ever-watchful providence to foresee possible results and send ogdens and mackintyres along to save our friends the government's official report showing that our railways killed 1200 persons last year and injured 60,000 convinces me that under present conditions one providence is not enough to properly and efficiently take care of our railroad business but it is characteristically american always trying to get along shorthanded and save wages i am helping your family congratulate themselves and am yo friend as always s l clemens clemens did not spend any more summers at quarry farm all its associations were beautiful and tender but they could only sadden him the life there had been as of another world sunlit idyllic now forever vanished for the summer of nineteen o five he leased the copley greenhouse at dublin new hampshire where there was a Boston colony of writing and artistic folk, including many of his long-time friends. Among them was Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who wrote a hearty letter of welcome when he heard the news. Clemens replied in kind, To Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson, in Boston, Twenty-one Fifth Avenue, Sunday, March twenty sixth, 1905. Dear Colonel Higginson, I early learned that you would be my neighbor in the summer, and I rejoiced, recognizing in you and your family a large asset. I hope for a frequent intercourse between the two households. I shall have my youngest daughter with me. the other one will go from the rescue in this city to the rescue in Norfolk, Connecticut, and we shall not see her before autumn we have not seen her since the middle of october jean the youngest daughter went to dublin and saw the house and came back charmed with it i know the thayer's of old manifestly there is no lack of attractions up there mrs thayer and i were shipmates in a wild excursion perilously near forty years ago you say you send with this the story then it should be here but it isn't when i send a thing with another thing the other thing goes but the thing doesn't i find it later still on the premises will you look it up now and send it aldrich was here half an hour ago like a breeze from over the fields with the fragrance still upon his spirit i am tired of waiting for that man to get old Sincerely yours, S.L.C. Mark Twain was in his seventieth year, old neither in mind nor body, but willing to take life more quietly, to refrain from travel and gay events. A sort of pioneer's reunion was to be held on the Pacific coast, and a letter from Robert Fulton, of Reno, Nevada, invited Clemens to attend. He did not go, but he sent a letter that we may believe was the next best thing to those who heard it read to robert fulton in reno nevada in the mountains may twenty fourth nineteen o five dear mr fulton i remember as if it were yesterday that when i disembarked from the overland stage in front of the ormsby in carson city in august eighteen sixty one i was not expecting to be asked to come again i was tired discouraged white with alkali dust and did not know anybody and if you had said then cheer up desolate stranger don't be downhearted, pass on and come again in 1905 you cannot think how grateful i would have been and how gladly i would have closed the contract although i was not expecting to be invited i was watching out for it and was hurt and disappointed when you started to ask me and changed it to how soon are you going away? But you have made it all right now. The wound is closed. And so I thank you sincerely for the invitation and with you all Reno. And if I were a few years younger, I would accept it and promptly. I would go. I would let somebody else do the oration. But as for me, I would talk just talk i would renew my youth and talk and talk and talk and have the time of my life i would march the unforgotten and unforgettable antiques by and name their names and give them reverent hail and farewell as they passed goodman mccarthy gillis curry baldwin winters howard nye neely johnson hal clayton north root and my brother upon whom be peace and then the desperadoes who made life a joy and the slaughterhouse a precious possession sam brown farmer pete bill mayfield six-finger jake jack williams and the rest of the crimson discipleship and so on and so on Believe me, I would start a resurrection It would do you more good to look at than the next one will, if you go on the way you are doing now. Those were the days, those old ones. They will come no more. Youth will come no more. They were so full to the brim with the wine of life. There have been no others like them. It chokes me up to think of them would you like me to come out there and cry it would not beseem my white head good-bye i drink to you all have a good time and take an old man's blessing mark twain a few days later he was writing to h h bancroft of san francisco who had invited him to a visit in event of his coming to the coast Henry James had just been there for a week, and it was hoped that Howells would soon follow. To H. H. Bancroft, in San Francisco, up in New Hampshire, May twenty-seventh, nineteen 1905. Dear Mr. Bancroft, I thank you sincerely for the tempting hospitalities which you offer me, but I have to deny myself, for my wandering days are over and it is my desire and purpose to sit by the fire the rest of my remnant of life and indulge myself with the pleasure and repose of work-work uninterrupted and unmarred by duties or excursions a man who like me is going to strike seventy on the thirtieth of next november has no business to be flitting around the way howells does-that shameless old fictitious butterfly but if it comes don't tell him I said it, for it would hurt him, and I wouldn't brush a flake of powder from his wing for anything. I only say it in envy of his indestructible youth, anyway. Howells will be eighty-eight in October. With thanks again. Sincerely yours, S.L.C. Clemens found that the heir of the New Hampshire Hills agreed with him and stimulated him to work he began an entirely new version of the mysterious stranger of which he already had a bulky and nearly finished manuscript written in vienna he wrote several hundred pages of an extravaganza entitled three thousand years among the microbes and then having got his superabundant vitality reduced it was likely to expend itself in these weird mental exploits he settled down one day and wrote that really tender and beautiful idol eve's diary which he had begun or at least planned the previous summer at Teringham, in a letter to mr frederick a Duneca, general manager of harper and brothers he tells something of the manner of the story also his revised opinion of adam's diary written in ninety three and originally published as a souvenir of niagara falls TO FREDERICK A. De Necker IN NEW YORK, Dublin, JULY 16, ART 5 Dear Mr. De Necker I wrote Eve's diary, she using Adam's diary as her unwitting and unconscious text, of course, since to use any other text would have been an imbecility. Then I took Adam's diary and read it. It turned my stomach. It was not literature, yet it had been literature once, before I sold it to be degraded to an advertisement of the Buffalo Fair. I was going to write and ask you to melt the plates and put it out of print, but this morning I examined it without temper and saw that if I abolished the advertisement it would be literature again. So I have done it. I have struck out 700 words and inserted five manuscript pages of new matter-650 words-and now Adam's diary is damn good-sixty times as good as it ever was before. I believe it is as good as Eve's diary now. No, it's not quite that good, I guess. But it is good enough to go in the same cover with Eve's, I'm sure of that i hate to have the old adam go out any more don't put it on the presses again let's put the new one in place of it and next christmas let us bind adam and eve in one cover they score points against each other so if not bound together some of the points would not be perceived p s please send another adam's diary so that i can make two revised copies Eve's diary is Eve's love story. But we will not name it that Yours ever Mark The peacemaking at Portsmouth between Japan and Russia was not satisfactory to Mark Twain, who had fondly hoped there would be no peace until, as he said, Russian liberty was safe. One more battle would have abolished the waiting chains of millions upon millions of unborn Russians and I wish it could have been fought." He set down an expression of his feelings for the Associated Press, and it invited many letters. Charles Francis Adams wrote, "'It attracted my attention because it so exactly expresses the views I have myself all along entertained. Clemens was invited by Colonel George Harvey to dine with the Russian emissaries Baron Rosen and Sergius Witt he declined but his telegram so pleased wit that he asked permission to publish it and announced that he would show it to the czar telegram to colonel george harvey in new york to colonel harvey i am still a cripple otherwise i should be more than glad of this opportunity to meet the illustrious magicians who came here equipped with nothing but a pen and with it have divided the honors of the war with the sword it is fair to presume that in thirty centuries history will not get done in mind these men who attempted what the world regarded as impossible and achieved it wit would not have cared to show the czar the telegram in its original form which follows telegram unsent to colonel george harvey in new york to colonel harvey i am still a cripple otherwise i should be more than glad of this opportunity to meet those illustrious magicians who with the pen have annulled obliterated and abolished every high achievement of the japanese sword and turned the tragedy of a tremendous war into a gay and blithesome comedy if i may let me in all respect and honor Salute them as my fellow- humorous, I taken third place, as becomes one who was not born to modesty but by diligence and hard work is acquiring it mark, nor still another unsent form, perhaps more characteristic than either of the foregoing telegram unsent to Colonel George Harvey in New York dear colonel no this is a love feast when you call a large a sorrow send for me mark to mrs crane quarry farm dublin September 24 art five susie dear i have had a lovely dream livy dressed in black was sitting up in my bed here at my right and looking as young and sweet as she used to do when she was in health. She said, What is the name of your sweet sister? I said, Pamela. Oh, yes, that is it. I thought it was... Naming a name which has escaped me. Won't you write it down for me? I reached eagerly for a pen and pad laid my hands upon both then said to myself it is only a dream and turned back sorrowfully and there she was still the conviction flamed through me that our lamented disaster was a dream and this a reality i said how blessed it is how blessed it is it was all a dream only a dream she only smiled and did not ask what dream i meant which surprised me she leaned her head against mine and i kept saying i was perfectly sure it was a dream i never would have believed it wasn't i think she said several things but if so they are gone from my memory i woke and did not know i had been dreaming she was gone I wondered how she could go without my knowing it. But I did not spend any thought upon that. I was too busy thinking of how vivid and real was the dream, that we had lost her, and how unspeakably blessed it was to find that it was not true, and that she was still ours and with us. S.L.C. One day that summer Mark Twain received a letter from the actress Minnie Mattern Fisk asking him to write something that would aid her in her crusade against bullfighting, The idea appealed to him. He replied at once, To Mrs. Fisk. Dear Mrs. Fisk, I shall certainly write the story, but I may not get it to suit me, in which case it will go in the fire. Later I will try again, and yet again and again i am used to this it has taken me twelve years to write a short story the shortest one i ever wrote i think footnote probably the death Disc. end of footnote so do not be discouraged i will stick to this one in the same way sincerely yours s l clemens he did not delay in his beginning, and a few weeks later was sending word to his publisher about it. To Frederick A. Denecker in New York, October 2, Art 5. Dear Mr. Denecker, I have just finished a short story which I greatly admire, and you will too. A horse's tale, about 15,000 words, had a rough guess. It has good fun in it and several characters and is lively i shall finish revising it in a few days or more then jean will type it don't you think you can get it into the january and february numbers and issue it as a dollar booklet just after the middle of january when you issue the february numbers it ought to be ably illustrated why not sell simultaneous rights for this one to the ladies home journal or colliers or both and recoup yourself for i would like to get it to classes that can't afford harper's although it doesn't preach there's a sermon concealed in it yours sincerely mark five days later he added some rather interesting facts concerning the new story to f a de necker in new york october seventh 1905 Dear Mr. De Necker I've made a poor guess as to number of words. I think there must be 20,000. My usual page of manuscript contains about 130 words, but when I'm deeply interested in my work and dead to everything else, my handwriting shrinks, and shrinks until there's a great deal more than 130 on a page. or oh, yes, a deal more well i discover this morning that this tale is written in that small hand this strong interest is natural, for the heroine is my daughter susie whom we lost it was not intentional it was a good while before i found it out so i am sending you her picture to use and to reproduce with photographic exactness the unsurpassable expression in all may you find an artist who has lost an idol take as good care of the picture as you can and restore it to me when i come i hope you will illustrate this tale considerably not humorous pictures no when they are good or bad one's humor gets no chance to play surprises on the reader a humorous subject illustrated seriously is all right but a humorous artist is no fit person for such work you see a humorous writer pretends to absolute seriousness when he knows his trade then for an artist to step in and give his calculated gravity all away with a funny picture oh my land it gives me the dry gripes just to think of it It would be just about up to the average comic artist's intellectual level to make a funny picture of the horse kicking the lungs out of a traitor. Hang it, the remark is funny. Because the horse is not aware of it, but the fact is not humorous. It is tragic, and it is no subject for a humorous picture. Could I be allowed to sit in judgment upon the pictures before they are accepted? at least those in which cathy may figure this is not essential it is but a suggestion and it is hereby withdrawn if it would be troublesome or cause delay i hope you will reproduce the cat-pile full page and save the photo for me in as good condition as possible when susie and clara were little tots those cats had their profoundest worship and there is no duplicate of this picture these cats all had thundering names or inappropriate ones furnished by the children with my help one was named buffalo bill are you interested in coincidences after discovering about the middle of the book that kathy was susie clemens i put a picture with my manuscript to be reproduced after the book was finished it was discovered that susie had a dim model a soldier boy in her arms I had forgotten all about that toy then i examined the cat picture and laid it with the manuscript for introduction but it was not until yesterday that i remembered that one of the cats was named buffalo bill sincerely yours mark the reference in this letter to shrinkage of his handwriting with the increasing intensity of his interest and the consequent addition of the number of words to the page recalls another fact noted by mr Duneka, viz that because of his terse anglo-saxon diction mark twain could put more words on a magazine page than any other writer it is hardly necessary to add that he got more force into what he put on the page for the same reason there was always a run of reporters at mark twain's new york home his opinion was sought for on every matter of public interest and whatever happened to him in particular was considered good for at least half a column of copy, with his name as a catch-line at the top. When it was learned that he was to spend the summer in New Hampshire, the reporters had all wanted to find out about it. Now that the summer was ending, they began to want to know how he had liked it, what work he had done, and what were his plans for another year as they frequently applied to his publishers for these details it was finally suggested to him that he write a letter furnishing the required information his reply handed to mr dunnecker who was visiting him at the moment is full of interest memo to mr dunnecker dublin october ninth nineteen o five as to the other matters here are the details yes i have tried a number of summer homes here and in europe together each of these homes had charms of its own charms and delights of its own and some of them even in europe had comforts several of them had conveniences too they all had a view it is my conviction that there should always be some water in a view a lake or a river but not the ocean if you are down on its level i think that when you are down on its level it seldom inflames you with an ecstasy which you could not get out of a sand flat it is like being on board ship over again indeed it is worse than that for there is three months of it on board ship one tires of the aspects in a couple of days and quits looking The same vast circle of heaving humps is spread around you all the time with you in the center of it and never gaining an inch on the horizon so far as you can see for variety a flight of flying fish mornings a flock of porpoises throwing somersaults afternoons a remote whale spouting sundays occasional phosphorescent effects nights every other day a streak of black smoke trailing along under the horizon on the one single red letter day the illustrious iceberg i have seen that iceberg thirty-four times in thirty-seven voyages it is always the same shape it is always the same size it always throws up the same old flash when the sun strikes it you may set it on any new york doorstep of a june morning and light it up with a mirror flash and i will engage to recognize it it is artificial and it is provided and anchored out by the steamer companies i used to like the sea but i was young then and could easily get excited over any kind of monotony and keep it up till the monotonies ran out if it was a fortnight last january when we were beginning to inquire about a home for this summer i remembered that abbot thayer had said three years before that the new hampshire highlands was a good place he was right it was a good place any place that is good for an artist in paint is good for an artist in morals and ink brush is here too so is col t w higginson so is Raphael pompelli so is mr secretary hitchcock so is henderson so is learned so is summer so is franklin mcveigh so is joseph l smith so is henry copley green when i'm not occupying his house which i'm doing this season paint literature science statesmanship history professorship law morals these are all represented here yet crime is substantially unknown the summer homes of these refugees are sprinkled a mile apart among the forest clad hills with access to each other by firm smooth country roads which are so embowered in dense foliage that it is always twilight in there and comfortable the forests are spider webbed with these good roads They go everywhere. But for the help of the guide-boards, the stranger would not arrive anywhere. The village Dublin is bunched together in its own place, but a good telephone service makes its markets handy to all those outliers. I have spelt it that way to be witty. The village executes orders on the Boston plan, promptness and courtesy the summer homes are high perched as a rule and have contenting outlooks the house we occupy has one monadnock a soaring double hump rises into the sky at its left elbow that is to say it is close at hand From the base of the long slant of the mountain the valley spreads away to the circling frame of the hills, and beyond the frame the billowy sweep of remote great ranges rises to view and flows, fold upon fold, wave upon wave, soft and blue and unworldly, to the horizon fifty miles away. In these October days, Monadnock and the valley and its framing hills make an inspiring picture to look at for they are sumptuously splashed and mottled and betorched from skyline to skyline with the richest dyes the autumn can furnish. And when they lie flaming in the full drench of the mid-afternoon sun, the sight affects the spectator physically. It stirs his blood like military music. These summer homes are commodious, well-built and well-furnished, facts which sufficiently indicate that the owners built them to live in themselves they have furnaces and wood fireplaces and the rest of the comforts and conveniences of a city home and can be comfortably occupied all the year round we cannot have this house next season but i have secured mrs upton's house which is over in the law and science quarter two or three miles from here and about the same distance from the art literary and scholastic groups the science and law quarter has needed improving this good while the nearest railway station is distant something like an hour's drive it is three hours from there to boston over a branch line you can go to new york in six hours per branch lines if you change cars every time you think of it but it is better to go to Boston and stop over and take the trunk-line next day. Then you do not get lost. It is claimed that the atmosphere of the New Hampshire highlands is exceptionally bracing and stimulating, and a fine aid to hard and continuous work. It is a just claim, I think. I came in May and wrote thirty-five successive days without a break. It is possible that i could not have done it elsewhere i do not know i have not had any disposition to try it before i think i got the disposition out of the atmosphere this time i feel quite sure in fact that that is where it came from i am ashamed to confess what an intolerable pile of manuscript i ground out in the thirty five days therefore i will keep the number of words to myself I wrote the first half of a long tale, The Adventures of a Microbe, and put it away for a finish next summer, and started another long tale, The Mysterious Stranger. I wrote the first half of it and put it with the other for a finish next summer. I stopped then. I was not tired, but I had no books on hand that needed finishing this year except one that was seven years old. After a little, I took that one up and finished it. Not for publication, but to have it ready for revision next summer. Since I stopped work I have had a two months' holiday. The summer has been my working time for thirty-five years. To have a holiday in it, in America, is new for me. I have not broken it, except to write Eve's diary and a horse's tale, short things occupying the mill twelve days this year our summer is six months long and ends with november and the flight home to new york but next year we hope and expect to stretch it another month and end it the first of december no signature the fact that he was a persistent smoker was widely known and many friends and admirers of mark twain sent him cigars most of which he could not use because they were too good he did not care for Havana cigars, but smoked the fragrant, inexpensive domestic tobacco with plenty of pep in it, as we say to-day. Now and then he had an opportunity to head off some liberal friend who wrote asking permission to contribute to his cigar collection, as instanced the following. To Reverend L. M. Powers in Havahill, Massachusetts, November 9, 1905. Dear Mr. Powers, I should accept your hospitable offer at once, but for the fact I couldn't do it and remain honest. That is to say, if I allowed you to send me what you believe to be good cigars, it would distinctly mean that I meant to smoke them, whereas I should do nothing of the kind. I know a good cigar better than you do, for I have had sixty years' experience. No, that is not what I mean. I mean I know a bad cigar better than anybody else. I judge by the price only. If it costs above five cents, I know it to be either foreign or half foreign and unsmokable. By me, I have many boxes of Havana cigars, of all prices, from twenty cents a piece up to a dollar sixty-six a piece. I bought none of them. They were all presents. They are an accumulation of several years. I have never smoked one of them and never shall. I worked them off on the visitor. You shall have a chance when you come. Pessimists are born, not made. Optimists are born, not made. But no man is born either pessimist wholly or optimist wholly, perhaps he is pessimistic along certain lines and optimistic along certain others that is my case sincerely yours s l clemens in spite of all the fine photographs that were made of him there recurred constantly among those sent him to be autographed a print of one which years before sereny had made and placed on public sale it was a good photograph Mechanically and even artistically, but it did not please Mark Twain whenever he saw it. he recalled sereny with bitterness and severity. Once he received an inquiry concerning it and thus feelingly expressed himself to Mr. Rowe no address twenty one fifth avenue new york November fourteenth nineteen o five Dear Mr. Rowe, that alleged portrait has a private history. Sereny was as much of an enthusiast about wild animals as he was about photography, and when Du Chaloux brought the first gorilla to this country in 1819, he came to me in a fever of excitement and asked me if my father was of record and authentic. I said he was. Then Sereny, without any abatement of his excitement, asked if my grandfather also was of record and authentic. I said he was. Then Sereny, with still rising excitement and with joy added to it, said he had found my great-grandfather in the person of the gorilla, and had recognized him at once by his resemblance to me. I was deeply hurt, but did not reveal this because I knew Sereny meant no offense for the gorilla had not done him any harm, and he was not a man who would say an unkind thing about a gorilla wantonly. I went with him to inspect the ancestor and examine him from several points of view without being able to detect anything more than a passing resemblance. Wait, said Serne with confidence, let me show you. He borrowed my overcoat and put it on the gorilla. The result was surprising. I saw that the gorilla while not looking distinctly like me was exactly what my great-grandfather would have looked like if I had had one. Sereny photographed the creature in that overcoat and spread the picture about the world. It has remained spread about the world ever since. It turns up every week in some newspaper somewhere or other. It is not my favorite, but to my exasperation it is everybody else's. Do you think you could get it suppressed for me? I will pay the limit. Sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens. The year nineteen o five closed triumphantly for Mark Twain. The great seventieth birthday dinner planned by Colonel George Harvey is remembered today as the most notable festival occasion in New York literary history other dinners and ovations followed at seventy he had returned to the world more beloved more honored than ever before end of section forty six recording by james k white chula Vista.